Hello, listeners. This week, we're excited to share a conversation we had recently with our friend and colleague, Sasha Thompson. Sasha is the founder of the Equity Equation, LLC, a boutique, inclusive culture consulting and coaching firm based in the Washington, D.C. area that helps clients by filling the gap between where they are now and where they want to be. With 20 plus years of experience within the education, nonprofit, and tech industries, Sasha's work is about removing barriers or providing support to achieve equity. During this podcast episode, we cover so many important topics to the modern workplace, ranging from when a white male says something as an ally, it matters so much, to why self-care matters to all of us. From the fact that black women are not all the same to why one person cannot own DEI in an organization. Sasha's wisdom and experience is palpable in the conversation. So listen in. Imagine if work was actually good for people, not just for a few people, but for everyone in every job. Sadly, work today is often not only not good, but it's actually terrible for the human beings who work there. We can do better. On this podcast, my friend and colleague, May Ratz and I, Mo Carrick, with our amazing guests, bring you both the hard questions and the real solutions to reimagining and resetting every workplace from the tiny mom and pop to the mega company to be good for people. When we thrive at work instead of just survive, everyone wins. Let's take a look at what it takes to make work human. Hello. Good morning, afternoon, everybody. We are here with Sasha Thompson, who I'm so excited to talk to. Sasha, thank you for being here. Thank you for making time. I'm excited about this. Yay. Okay. Sasha, you run a company. You do a lot of stuff, but you one of the things that you do is that you run a company called The Equity Equation. So will you tell us about it? Will you tell us why it needs to exist and what it does? So the Equity (laughs) Equation is what I call a boutique consulting firm that focuses on inclusive cultures. We work with organizations to help their people leaders focus on those skills that they don't necessarily get in the workplace. So for example, most folks get promoted because they're really good with widgets, buying, selling, making widgets. They're not necessarily promoted because of their people skills right? And managing people. And so the equity equation really focuses on how to build those skills with a lens of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So it's not just, I want to be a great leader, but how do you do so where it's equitable, where people are getting what they need versus blanket offerings. So that's what we really focus on with the equity equation. Mm. And we sometimes talk about like the difference between people and performance leadership, which is like the widgets versus the human beings that are involved. And one of the things I love about what you're doing with the equity equation, and of course, in, in addition, just personally knowing the quality and caliber of the work you do, I love the way you're really emphasizing psychological safety, which is so critical in every dimension, of course, especially inclusion. But thank you so much for your good work out there. It's all hands on deck, isn't it? Absolutely. And the reason I focused on psychological safety to start was because I knew I didn't have it when I was in working in corporate, right? Mm -hmm. When I was working in nonprofit, when I was working in higher education. And so when I did a reflection on what was it that I needed, and it was psychological safety, but I realized that many of my managers weren't equipped with the challenges that I was facing. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel that I could speak up or when I spoke up, because the organization wasn't prepared to have those conversations, 
it was them going into protection mode. And so then me feeling like I was on the outside. And so I really want to change the narrative in that we have to create these psychologically safe spaces where people feel comfortable speaking up, where they can share what they're experiencing so that we can collectively come to a solution versus making them feel demonized in the process. Thank you for that. We sometimes call that brave space workplaces. That's what my second book is all about. But I'm curious about it. You said my managers were not equipped for the things that I'm dealing with. And so for our listeners who might be listening only to the audio of this recording, they can't tell that you are a person of color, a woman of color. I assume that's how you identify. And so does that I'm not equipped have to do with the identity cards that you carry as well as just who you were in your role? Tell us a little more about that because I love the way you language that and I completely believe you. Yeah. So for example, I worked for an organization. I worked for a tech startup where I was the first Black female that the company had hired. And so walking in, there were situations where, one situation in particular, where we were at an offsite and the only other Black female that was in the building was not with our organization and was soliciting some of the men that were there. And within two days of us being there, I realized that people didn't know that I was not that woman. So things were being said, comments were being made. I'm like, just because I'm a black woman doesn't mean we're the same person. Um, And started having some really difficult conversations, but the organization had never had to deal with that before. Yeah. And so rather than questioning, oh, are we really prepared to even have these conversations? Mm -hmm. It was, oh, you misunderstood. I'm like, this man just asked me what he could get from me for $5. Hmm. Oh my God. And so I learned very quickly that, as a matter of fact, that was probably the time in my career where I was like, let me take my DEI hat off and let me just be a marketer for a while. <laughs> yeah. And then I was like, nope, that has to stay on. And so my manager and my VP at the time knew and understood. They knew what I was saying and experiencing, but they didn't know how to deal with it. And there was no one within the organization that had the wherewithal to even understand how to approach the situation outside of compliance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the and what I'm hearing is like the first step you what you encountered was denial, like problem, what problem? Yep. Then minimization, like, oh, come on, yep. Sasha, you must have been the one who understood problems that are typical in organizations, but how lonely and how isolating yep to feel like you're with a team that is so ill-equipped to even notice, much less kind of navigate or help you navigate that situation. And unfortunately, I think that's really common. Um, It's very common. And luckily, unluckily, my colleague that was with me and witnessed it was a white male. And we had worked together at another company before. And he was angry. Like he wanted to punch this guy in the face. So I'm like trying to talk him down. We just got here. We can't be punching Mm -hmm. people in the face yet. But it was also because he was my witness, that's when people started to believe it. Mm -hmm. Right. So I'm like, it shouldn't have to take my colleague to say something in order for me to not be exaggerating or taking something out of context. So I was glad that he was there to be there to witness and then be very supportive in that time. But again, he shouldn't have had to justify 
Mm-hmm. I felt the way that I felt. That kind of started me in this whole process of really thinking part of the problem within organizations is that people aren't equipped. They don't know, they don't understand. And so one of the questions that I always get now is, okay, yeah, we get unconscious bias, we get microaggressions, but what do we do? And so that's the work that we really try to do is in addition to psychological safety is here's some tangible things that you can do in order to build psychological safety, to respond to microaggressions, all of these things. Sasha, that's, we could probably just stop, stop the podcast now. That's like probably <laughs> just like an, enough, like the amount of things of, wow, like standing in proximity to whiteness then validates your experience for everybody else. Like that in itself is a whole podcast. And the bit about that you aren't even talking about doing the actual job that you went to that meeting to do. You're just talking about being in that room and trying to keep your wits about you while other things are swirling around. All of and that. Helping, well, and helping people not lump together all that all black all black women are the same here. Right. Our, all of the two, they're the same right. person actually. Right. Yeah, we can just you right. We could just carry it forward from here. <laughs> yeah, we're done. What other, yeah. What other questions? But I'm struck by what you're describing is that people go from this moment of oh no, we just messed up, and they just zoom all the way out. They don't go actually in. They don't go deeper into being like, whoa, Sasha, that was probably messed up of us. I'm so sorry. Into the singular experience. They go way far out and are like, what should we do as a company about this? Tell us. (laughs) Not only have we wounded you, now you be in charge of fixing it. Right. I think that is actually very usual Mm -hmm. because we want to fix it for everybody right this minute. Which kind of leads me to this question that's not on the list, but why did you choose the word equity equation instead of inclusion equation? Ooh, I have a cousin. I call her aunt because of the age difference that's been doing diversity and inclusion work for over 40 years. And at the start of the pandemic, she and I would have these weekly calls because I knew I was going to go into some type of consulting work and she had been doing consulting work. And we were having this conversation around diversity, equity, inclusion. And I was like, you know what? Equity is the part that no one talks about. About equality. But in order to connect diversity and inclusion, you have to have equity. You have to be able to balance the scales, right? And so in that conversation, she was just like, it's, a, it's like a math equation, right? Y plus X equals Z. And so I'm like, it's actually an equation. And what are you missing when you don't focus on equity, right? Mm-hmm. You always get butts in seats. You could try to make people feel included and belong, but you're not fixing anything until you focus on equity. Hell yes. And Thank so you. that's why the company is named the way that it is, because what do we need to, either barriers we need to remove or support that we need to provide, or what are those things? And so as we started at the top, one of the barriers I'm trying to remove are managers that just aren't equipped. That's part of the challenge. Like, how do we remove that so we can now get to more equitable outcomes? I really love that because it's uh, there's no shame and blame in just not having the skill. Like, you just don't have the skill, right? And that can be learned. Yeah, we always talk about upskilling or reskilling, right? Like, Mm -hmm. we don't blame anyone for being where they are or who they are, but how can we help you build that capacity? And do so in a way that, again, is equitable, right? So may what you need may be very different than what Mo needs. I can't just give you both the same thing, 
right? So how do we give you that personalized touch so that everyone is being set up for success? Bravo. For everybody listening to the podcast, Mo and I are just wildly nodding. So for- <laughs> we're wildly nodding and I'm like clapping, like in my mind, I'm clapping. Because, and it connects actually to something that you just said, May, which is that I think one of the things that I see with my people, which are white women in particular, right? When I think about that, although I have many other aspects of my identity from the outside looking in, that is one of the first ones that someone would notice in meeting me. And one of the things that I notice in white women, and I see it in white men as well, I would say probably white people of all identities in general, are very vulnerable to the fragility that comes with shame. So I'm just imagining like that moment when you spoke your truth in that early job where someone was confusing you with the other woman who was in the building, and then kind of instantly feeling that's bad, that's bad. I did something bad. I am bad. Now, now I'm going to become all the things that come when I feel shame. I feel inadequate. I did some, this person who I maybe care about who I'm working with is now in trouble or feeling bad things. And how do I repair that? And so I love the emphasis on equity. And I love this idea of equipping one another, of helping one another to develop the skills that we need to do these kinds of partnerships. It's something we talk a lot about in our practice. May and I were just talking about it this morning around our own blind spots, which we'll have, I'm sure, until we each go to the grave because we're learning. We're getting more equipped every day. So thank you for that language. Yeah. And I appreciate that, Mo, because what I think a lot of, and I'm just going to say in general with Mm -hmm. DEI practitioners is that introspection, right? A lot of folks go into this work because they're passionate about it but they have not necessarily done the introspective work to understand where they may have their gaps, to understand why they react in a way that comes across as fragility, Mm -hmm. right? What are the fears that they may have? All of those things, that work has not been done. And I think that is so critical in anyone moving forward in this work. And so if you're asking yourself those questions, then that's the right path. I've come across way too many practitioners that think passion is enough yes. to even push them forward yes. and don't realize that they're probably causing more harm than good by not addressing their own challenges. Yeah, it's tender. It's tender work for all of us. And I think that we have to put ourselves in the equation, especially as practitioners, for sure. Absolutely. This, let us move into the next question, which is that if the work world or the market that you're sitting in Sasha is, if you envision it as an ocean and it's really stormy, uh, which I think it just is right now. We might be in a swell currently. What do you see the successful boats doing? And where do you see the boats that are actively sinking? What are they doing? And my addition to this question is, do you think the boats that are sinking know they're sinking? especially around the work that you're doing. Because I think there are certain places like they're just not great at marketing. Those That group probably knows they're sinking. But I think that mm-hmm. DEI, is, it's a harder globular to notice if you're sinking before you're actually underwater. So that's a large question, but go for yeah, it. And I love that question. I think the boats that are sinking have done superficial DEI work yeah. and they've put the onus on one person within the organization. Very few resources, very few like little budget. Those are the ones that are sinking because they are not, they're looking at it as a checkbox activity versus a part of the company's culture and DNA. 
And so where I am seeing, (laughs) where I am seeing success is the organizations that are really trying to figure out how do we make this inclusion in particular front and center as a part of our company DNA? Mm. What does this look like? Who is responsible for it? And it ties into business goals and objectives. It is. It goes beyond human resources. That's the other place. If your DEI efforts are only living in HR, then you're checking a box and you're setting yourself up for failure. I'm sorry. Were you in the conversation with Mo and I an hour and a half ago? <laughs> I feel Not like maybe. <laughs> And also, let me just say, like, when we look at these tech layoffs, like this, a huge percentage of these layoffs are in HR and in the DEI, partly because of that exact marginalization. So yes, and double yes. And so I have an idea to propose for you. Meg, can I share it with her? Go for it. Yes. Okay. Because I'm on fire about this issue right now in particular. And I have been about how broken HR has been for a long time, right? And I sometimes say HR can't save you now. And, and this, these are also my people. I grew up in that industry as an OD practitioner. I got all the certifications, all that stuff. But the same token, it has really become to protect the entity, yep. right? And so I'm. this is my latest idea that I want to sing from the rooftops. Let's move HR and compliance under legal, where it belongs. Let's, let's move DEI out of HR. Let's create community. Let's create chief community officers who already exist in a lot of organizations, by the way, because that's a growing field. But now let's make them in charge of people and inclusion and equity, because that's actually what taking care of your organization's number one asset is about. It's about building a community where everyone feels seen and valued so that they can really kick ass with the work. So I'm about banishing both. Let's banish, like you said, the allocation of diversity to one person who, by the way, we can let go at any time when the going gets tough. And also let's take people out of one person that is a compliance and legally function organization. Are you with me? So I totally agree. What I've always been saying, and I've said this for quite a while and have had some folks (laughs) look at me like I was crazy. I think that the chief diversity officer should be right next to, if not the chief operations officer mm-hmm. and HR go under that because the, that chief diversity officer, that needs to be touching accounting, that needs to be a touching marketing, product design, human resources, all every aspect of the business. So that's why I think it should be in operations or close to operations. Yes. Yeah. So I think we're like really aligned with that because it's, now it's not one person's responsibility. It's everyone's responsibility. It's tied to our business goals. It touches the community. Like I've even done something on my podcast around ESGs and if that's where diversity goes. And I'm like, I still feel like that's disconnected too. Yes. But yeah, I am all about, I think I did a blog post not too long ago. Is it time to dismantle HR? And yes. we did. that. I told Most someone that their baby was ugly, but yeah, and we know why it exists. Like, we're not naive. We're experienced professional people. There is a function for, for human right. resources. And I don't mean to minimize our colleagues out there who are doing really good work. And it's become something that it didn't start out being. And the issues right. are different today in terms of what employees are looking for and the kinds of communities we're building that are for human thriving, actually, which yeah. is a crisis. So I think in time of crisis, it's important to debunk all the sacred cows that are out there. And this is one of them. So we're with you. 
I my clients, they've changed to people experience mm-hmm. and co- like people experience and culture. And in that people experience, they're now equipping those folks with coaching skills, yeah. with mm-hmm. mediation skills. Like, again, it goes back to that skill, right? Upskilling and reskilling people. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so, because they're realizing, Mo, to your point, that the issues are different now, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. This is beyond compliance. This is beyond just, okay, are we going to get sued for this? This right. is around wellness and health and safety and psychological safety and all of these things that, and I will say this, SHRM is behind in, in preparing folks for. I agree. Right? And even will I work here, right? Even right. beyond all the functions, it's like, will I work here? Will I choose to bring my talents here? Absolutely. Not if I don't have a leader who's good for people. Not if I don't have someone who can build relationships, see me, value me, integrate me into meaningful work that feeds my heart and soul, helps me lead a life where I'm well and upright. Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to go back one little bit to just clarify for a second that you had about it's, on, it's hanging on one person in yeah. on the sinking ship. The problem with having one person in charge of solving racism in your company is that then when racism is not solved, it looks like it's their fault. And that is troublesome for a lot of reasons. But one is because when all that pressure is there on that one person, it's not only their professional things that hang on the line, but also their personal and their livelihood. And so it becomes really enmeshed and scary, I can imagine, to be one of those people and to feel that much responsibility. And oftentimes that one person, this is a generalization, but hang with me, are black and brown. And so there's a lot of stuff along there. So just to say the problem that you've noted is very large. <laughs> yeah. And I would add, and it's not only racism, although we know racism is yeah, key, but it's all the things, right? It's the sexism yeah. and the ableism and the heteronormativity and all of those things is now being put on one person. One person. As if, and therefore it means the rest of us are like, oh, that that goes to that person. It's the same thing. Yeah. If we say being a good leader lives only in HR, then that also goes to that person. To me, it's the same damage, yeah. isn't it? It's no, actually, that means, does that mean I don't have to become a good leader, an equitable leader, an inclusive leader? No, I actually should be. That's my job that, as a people leader. Right. And that's the key point of kind of what we're doing here is I want to take that pressure off of that person, made to your point, who's always, for the most part, tends to be some marginalized community anyway. Right. Right. So if we're putting the pressure on other people to be more inclusive leaders and giving them the skills to do that, then that one person, their job shifts to be more of a resource or a supportive, holistic way than to be the gatekeeper and problem solver for all things that they have no control over. Thank you for listening to Let's Make Work Human. We firmly believe that it is all hands on deck. Every one of us at work can make a difference to building workplaces that bring out our best. If you agree and want support for how you can make a difference, head on over to our website, momentum.com or mocaric.com to join our weekly show up newsletter, chock full of inspiration, tips, and tools. If you connected to what Sasha shared about actions we can all take to build equity at work, you might be ready for a streamlined approach to developing yourself or the people leaders on your team to be good for people. Go to leadingpeopleprogram.com to learn more and apply now. Let's get back to the show. Remind me, Mo, what it's called, the like the levels of management situation. Oh, that- the levels of complexity from Elliot Jacques. Yeah. 
and yeah. this is just coming to me right now, but that we're essentially asking that one person when we put it on one person or one group to do all the levels. levels. And we wouldn't do that to any other group. No. Like we wouldn't make the one marketing person do all of the things. So it's yeah. confusing to me. Totally. And it reminds me, I was talking to somebody about this the other day about if you have a friend of mine is a CFO. And I said, so because you're the CFO, does that mean that nobody else in the system has to know how to manage a budget, <laughs> track revenue, right? Be responsible for expenses. Is that what that means? And she was like, no, Mo, that's not what that means. You know that. I'm like, I was just asking rhetorically because right. that is what happens in this space that we're talking about, yeah. which is, I think, the systemic marginalization of yeah. both building workplaces that are fit for human life and inclusive. It's the same for me. It's, it all, it's not the same in terms of intensity, but it's the same in terms of the ball of wax that it all lands in. So yeah. thanks for calling that out, May. Yeah. And again, May, back to your point around sinking ships. If that person burns out, what happens? Right? No one knows what to do. And so everything pauses until that person comes back. And then it's this flood. And then it's the cyclical yeah. process of they're going to burn out again. So yeah. Isn't that an interesting I, leadership question too? Like for anyone in the system, what happens if that person burns out? What do we do? I think if you ask that about every single person that works for you, you would get some pretty interesting data. Yeah. Like, yeah, oh, that makes me want to cry. <laughs> yes. And it's also that it, I just was, I just shared something on LinkedIn this morning because somebody, some brilliant writer whose name I'm afraid I can't remember, but we'll put it in the show notes, wrote this article in 2018 and it uses language that we use, which I didn't know they had used language before. They actually didn't use the exact, the exact language, but they're talking about heroic models of leadership have to go. And we call it the no heroes journey, like the leadership mm -hmm. is not about heroism. So yet for these chief diversity officer positions, or when we allocate that job to one person, we're that's exactly what we're expecting of them to be heroic. And yeah. so we wonder why they burn out. And Sasha, you've had a particular focus in your practice on mm. that dimension of really self-care. Tell us more about what you've discovered around self-care for practitioners in the DEI space. It was exactly what we were talking about, right? It's having all of this pressure on you, <laughs> that should be everybody's responsibility. And on top of that, I was experiencing racism within the organization, right. right? So again, I'm supposed to educate people on it. I'm supposed to, I'm trying not to be the gatekeeper of all these things. I'm trying to so get other folks to take on some of this responsibility and I'm dealing with it. And mm -hmm. I started to burn out, hair started mm -hmm. to fall out, got some ulcers, and really got to a point where my health was in the balance. No one should be rushed to the ER three times within four months. Oh, yeah. It was a constant, yep, going to the ER. Yep. <laughs> Take me to the ER. And I ended up having to change diet and all of these things. But when I left that situation, I was very cognizant of whatever I do next, self-care has to be centered in that. And so started coaching other practitioners. And again, one of the first questions I would ask them was, what do you do to take care of yourself? And I realized that many of them were like, I don't. I'm they like, right. They're like, I take care of everyone else, right? Like corporate caregivers. They're the ones when people don't want to go to HR to complain, they go to the DEI person, right? And so they become these unofficial therapists. Many of them don't know boundaries. And so they then take on that empathy yeah. of taking on those burdens as well, too. Mm -hmm. right? And they start to feel burnt out. So 
I started just making note of what are people saying or what are the questions that I'm asking them to think about? What are some of the things that they're saying that they're starting to do? And from there created Fill Your Cup Fridays. So on social media, I was doing every Friday. I haven't done it in a while, but every Friday, Fill Your Cup Friday, where I would give a tip. Yeah, because I've been taking Fridays off. So I'm like, I don't have time. (laughs) I'm filling my cup on Fridays. Yes. But giving a little tip on something that you can do and focus on for yourself. That then morphed into a journal. Like I created a 60 days to self-care journal for DEI practitioners. And it's designed to give you five to 10 minutes a day to focus on one thing that you can do, right? Mm -hmm. So it ranges from the typical go to the spa to breathe, drink water, listen to music, hang out with a friend or call a friend, write in your journal, different things that they can do every single day for 60 days. And then at the end of those 60 days, I'm like, reflect on what worked for you. Mm -hmm. What do you want to continue to do for yourself? And then just repeat those things. And in addition to that, each day, ask like, why is this important for you today? And when you have to stop and think about like, why is it important for me to breathe? It really makes you think about, wow, okay, I need to do something to center myself or focus or not just rush through my day. I need to be mindful in breathing. So that's where that morphed from. I Again, in part of my podcast, that's the last question I ask all of my guests. What do you do to take care of yourself? How do you fill your cup? And I want people to see that it looks different for everyone. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I'm really struck with how powerful that construct must be. We talk about self-care. We have a model we call the shelter model. I have a question that I want to ask you about that in a minute, but I I notice often how hard it is for our clients to even, you said some of your clients who are like, what? Like, what do you mean self-care? Right. And I also have seen that in particular, the black and feminine clients that we have the band of spaciousness that they've had for self-care is so narrow that it's often not even something that they've ever even felt that they could entertain the concept. Is that consistent with your experience? It comes with negative connotations. Yeah. Lazy or it's, you should, you should have done that before or it's hard to get halfway. And so there's this mindset that, you have to put on your cape. You have to be the superwoman. You have mm-hmm. to do it all because the world tells you the opposite. You have to show and prove. You have to but prove. Yeah. I've gotten to this point, and especially in my life, where I'm just like, I ain't got nothing to prove to you. <laughs> like at all. And it's funny. I don't know if we're not on video, but my sweatshirt today says self-love is so gangster. Mm-hmm. I love it. It is. Yes. Oh, I can stand up. Yep. So it's um. Oh, oh, yes. oh my gosh! You got to send us the link where you can. Have that. <laughs> but that's like my part of my mantra. I need to do the things that allow me to show up, so that I'm giving from my overflow and mm. not from an empty cup. I need to take care of myself before I can take care of anyone else, and so. Once I had that mindset of I need to constantly be filling my cup and not just thinking about it when I have a little bit of a break, which is why I did the 60 days, because I'm like, you need to constantly be focused on taking care of self, doing the things that you need to do, Mm -hmm. creating environments that fill you, right? That don't drain you. Mm -hmm. So 
Yeah, so powerful for all, for every leader and every human really in the workplace. And yet so easy to just fritter away our yeah. self-care and to think, to tell ourselves a story that we can actually make a difference when we're empty, which is of course a lie, but we all tell ourselves that. And as you said so powerfully, for some society actually encourages this kind of behavior that isn't very healthy. And so I'm curious about something that we sometimes talk about this equation that we introduced actually during COVID which goes like this, self-care plus team care equals a healthy, cohesive community. Because one of the things that I've really noticed is that self-care alone, especially in the construct of a work team, is actually not enough. May could do all the yoga she wants. She can go to the spa. She can stay fit, eat well, drink water. But if she's not actually getting cared for and nurtured in our small company, then it's very possible she won't thrive there. And I was Mm -hmm. so struck with Dr. Murthy's report that came out in January about workplace well-being and mental health, where he really does call out how marginalized communities are less well than Mm -hmm. insider communities. So like we all probably knew that, but it's quite stark when you look at the research. And so to me, I'm curious what you think about that, about this idea of team care and what you're seeing or what you think are the kinds of team care that really help for practitioners in this space in equity and inclusion. What does it look like when their team is actually also caring for them? This is a whole other podcast. (laughs) (laughs) This is a whole other podcast topic. (laughs) Because it's a lot to unpack in that. I think we... We've talked about this. Corporate culture is very individualistic, right? Yes. We like we know that it's this rugged individualism. And so we think about self-care in that way. But when yeah. you think of particularly communities of color, culturally, mm-hmm. historically, they are communities, mm-hmm. right? Of how we come together. So it, it there's an immediate clash of yes. cultures yes. when you think about team dynamics. Yep. Communities of care when they are safe spaces already exist. Mm. You will find that particularly in communities of color, if it's a a safe space or environment, there is this communal care. There is this, we will all, we all do well when one of us, like when one of us is, we all do well. And there's this push and pull. It becomes a challenge in the corporate space because it's very centered on this individualistic ideal. Mm. So once we strip away like supremacist culture from corporate culture, that's when we'll start to have probably a little bit more of that dynamic. I think that there's power in that, but what are we willing to let go of in order to do that? Yeah, I'm struck with that. That's really powerful, especially when it comes to the way we overvalue rugged individualism. Right. Because in the face of rugged individualism, team care, community care becomes insignificant, less valued, something you don't invest in. Yeah. Because there really is, right? There's no I in team. That's right. right. So if we're focused so much on the individual, I was in a training a couple of last week. My days are blending together. Me too. (laughs) Where the founder said something so profound that we, when we're looking at team culture, we are coaching to the team, the needs of the team, not the individuals within the team. Mm-hmm. And so often what happens in team settings is the leader looks at the strengths of each individual to try to pull it together versus stepping back and saying, what are the strengths of this team? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about care, when you think about how we work in teams, we have to remove the individuals 
to some degree from that and coach and support and mentor holistically the team, mm-hmm. right? Which forces us to really think through what does communication look like? What are our shared goals and values? What is our collective North Star? Mm-hmm. Those conversations rarely happen. Yeah. What are the agreements we have about how we treat each other? Yeah. All right. of that. Absolutely. How do we define our culture? Do we Mm -hmm. even, are we aligned in that as a team? Do you think people being like capital P people, like they don't want to have, they don't want to just say it, say the thing of we're either too scared to do that or we don't want to do that. What do you think it is? Why is this a bend that we're having to round here? (laughs) Because what do you think it is? being couched in rugged individualism can't we connect we can connect it can't we in like into a business case like there is our into the thing so it seems like the bend should even if it's purely optics and money you can still get around the bend so don't you think there's one piece (laughs) that somebody's not saying that's like we don't care about it we don't want to we're too scared we're not doing it for ourselves It goes back to what we were saying before. What do I do? Tell me what to do. Because we're so focused on that individual that people don't know what it means or what it looks like to think of as a collective, particularly in corporate America, I'm air quoting America. We don't know what that looks like. Mm -hmm. And so we are also a country of followers and not necessarily doers in that what's the, I need a case study. I need to see who's done this well and successfully. That's a different culture than your organization. What does it look like for your organization? Yeah, well, I'm struck with, yeah, and I'm struck with that the antagonist of rugged individualism is interdependence. Mm-hmm. And so it brings right. what, what I'm thinking about, May, with what you're saying, and I think it's such a good question, is I think we actually don't trust interdependence. I think the culture, the lived yeah. experience yeah. inherited from the Industrial Revolution of what good business is based on independence, not interdependence. And so unless we really unpack what that looks like in every sector, in every team, it's something we can't really like build in a conscious way. We can, but we have to do some of the things that you're talking about here. Yeah. Sasha, will you tell us how people can support your work? What's what's a thing that our community can do? We've got a good community. They respond to emails. They're the greatest. They're paying attention. They're trying their freaking best. They're good people. So let us know what we can ask them to do. Yeah, they can follow my podcast as well, which is DEI After Five. And I have different practitioners talking about what I like to call the dirt in the corner, like the things around diversity and equity and inclusion that we don't necessarily talk about. I try to push the envelope in, in those ways, in those conversations. If they're looking to do psychological safety work, please feel free to reach out. My website is www.theequityequationllc.com. And we love doing psychological safety work with teams and doing assessments because we know part of corporate culture is they love data. So we <laughs> give lots of data. We're all going to be good yeah. at assessments because in our work, huh? Because we get everybody wants the data. I'm always yeah. like, I'm going to tell you what you already know, but we'll go ahead and do. We'll give you the data. We do psychological <laughs> safety data. assessments. We do inclusive culture assessments. We have a, an inclusive culture index that we were just about to launch. Yeah, if there are organizations or folks out there that want to do that type of work in a way that has a lens of diversity and inclusion, that incorporates one-on-one and group coaching, 
definitely reach out. Awesome. awesome. I, people, people can buy your self-care book on your website, right? Yes. Yep. Yes. So go to the website, go to the resources tab and they can get that. They can also download a people manager's guide to psychological safety as well. Awesome. Yes, I got that. It's excellent. Very good. I have two more questions. I'm sorry. This yep, felt like it was the end, but it's not. <laughs> that was a fake out. You're good. Um, okay. They're not connected. <laughs> so bear with me there. The first one is... Sasha, what is what happens in your body when you, as a black woman, say the word self care to a room of other black women? Do you feel nervous? Do you feel excited? Do you feel proud? Do you sweat a lot? What happens? No, just, no I think it is probably one of the most freeing things oh. to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I talk about my journey a lot to self care, and I'm becoming much more comfortable in. No is a complete sentence, right? So <laughs> knowing when to say no and yeah. it's okay to say no and being able to, as you said, reading my body, like there have been times where I will wake up and I'm like, you know what? I'm not feeling a hundred percent. And I will call my clients and say, you know what? I'm not going to show up as my best self today. Let's reschedule this. Love so again, it. it's like modeling that behavior as well. So when I'm in a room talking to other Black women about self-care, I'm like, why are you not doing this? Here's a here's a journal. <laughs> Pick a page. Start somewhere. And then helping them through that. But then it's accountability, too. Making sure they stick to it. I love it. Okay. Here's my other question. Okay. What is, when you look out into the work world, mm-hmm. what are you super worried about? And then what are you also feeling? Surprise. Oh, wasn't expecting that. Thank you so much. Kind of surprise. I don't know if I would say worried. There is a little, I am watching very, uh, very closely what's happening at the state level with diversity, equity, and inclusion, particularly in higher education. Mm. And with this Supreme Court around affirmative action, I'm watching that very carefully and cautiously. Mm-hmm. What I am somewhat optimistic about is the direction that I've taken my company in that I'm focusing on inclusive leadership. No, that one, no one's fighting that. No one is fighting inclusive leadership and what that means. And so my phrase for the last year has been, I'm just going to continue to sneak in the vegetables, right? So <laughs> I can talk about diversity and inclusion in ways and folks don't even realize that's what's happening, but they're doing it. Right? Like when I talk about inclusive leadership and I talk about who's not at the table and who's not being represented and whose voices aren't being heard and they're responding in the way that they need to respond, right? I will continue to sneak in those vegetables, right? So that's what I'm excited about because I think that there is an appetite for that, particularly when you think politically, when I have those conversations with folks on the right, on the Mm -hmm. far, not far right, on the right. Right -right Right-ish, yeah. (laughs) Right-ish. see themselves in that because yeah. what I do fear is this far pendulum swing of we're not going to even listen to or talk to or acknowledge you, which is exclusionary. Yeah. Right. So how do we, again, have inclusive conversations where everyone feels seen, heard, valued, connected, and we can do so in a way where we can have actual conversations about this without totally canceling it people out yeah so that was a very long-winded way to say i'm just very cautious and optimistic but i'm seeing good things if we do it the right way 
What I'm hearing yep. too is that there's there is that inviting everyone to the table means inviting everyone to the table. And I think that gets missed sometimes. It's like yeah. everybody that thinks like me is invited to the table. Let's get more people like that there, which is yeah. still the same problem. Like even yeah. if we change the faces at this table, if we all say the same thing, very difficult still to make change happen. Wow. I appreciate that. And, yeah. and there's power in that, right? When you look at what's happening in higher education right now, one of the men that's really pushing this is from Georgetown University, made a statement about Justice Brown, Katanji Brown, mm -hmm. Jackson, and was reprimanded for that. I think that was one of those, we're cancel, let's just cancel it, which I don't think is the right answer to these yes. things. But the exact thing that happened was because I went through that process, because of DEI, I now think DEI is bad. Yes. And now his research is what's leading everything that's happening in Florida and South Carolina and all of these other places that are now saying DEI needs to be out of the university setting. Mm -hmm. So because of his bad experience, mm -hmm. the power that he has, and there's some fragility in that, but that power mm -hmm. is such that it's going to the opposite extreme. So yeah. we could definitely look at when we're having these conversations, are we cutting people off because we totally disagree or can we allow them to say what they're saying and then the consequences look different? That just leads me back to this like reorg structure that you proposed, Mo, which yeah. is like actually companies reorg all the time. That's like a normal thing to do. I didn't right. even know what that word meant before I worked here, but it turns out it happens all the time. But that the tenderness of actually just reorging and the normalization of that, that you can sneak in a vegetable there in just that let's reorg and see if it changes. Yeah. I think yeah, that right. miss is so simple. Totally. And let's let the form follow the function. And what I'm hearing you say, Sasha, and I'm in, a, I'm in complete agreement is like, we can't afford to other anyone, actually. Yeah. And I'm also hearing that when people are shamed for making a mistake, now I'm not talking about this person, because there's probably, like you said, some fragility and some politicking that goes on in that particular situation, which we all know about. But by the same token, there is if we harm someone, with the judgment that we're making about them being a certain ism, then our chances of reclaiming and rebuilding trust in the dialogue where we all actually feel seen. So I love what you're saying about it. We're not going to other people, then we're not going to other anyone. I also love, and I want to underline it because we do have a lot of entrepreneurs, women entrepreneurs in particular in our community, that you said that's really powerful when they ask you that question, which is around your confidence and your surety about the direction of your practice. And what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing is like, you're connected to your values, you've prioritized self-care, and you're kicking it in your business. And it's built on those two things. There's no accident that the equity equation, the podcast are taking off because you've made these choices. We, I think we feel similarly in our firm around some of the things that we're noticing and realizing. And for entrepreneurs in particular, where it is vulnerable, we are, as entrepreneurs, vulnerable to poor mm -hmm. mental health. It's highly stressful. So saying, no, actually, I'm going to get clear on how I take care of me and I'm going to get clear on what matters to me so that I can focus my business in that direction is really, I think, where it starts. So I love that you said that just as a personal connection as well. Beautiful. But it's a, turning out to be a business choice. The personal right. choice is also our business choices. Yes. Yeah. And no one went to pivot. Like I wasn't a huge fan of Friends, but that episode with the pivot <laughs> with the couch stays in my mind because- yeah. That was such a big part of me being comfortable in becoming an entrepreneur, understanding the audience, understanding what's happening in the world around us and being able to pivot to 
meet those needs. Mm -hmm. And when we don't do that and we're kind of in, this is my value and this is where I think we need to go and the world has moved past, then you're going to be stressed out because you're now trying to catch up. So it's being comfortable enough to pivot in the places where you need to pivot without sacrificing your values and and why you do what you do. And yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yourself. You know? Yeah, less less ER visits, less ulcers. On the other side of this monitor, I have a velvet chair. I have it's just your job, Sasha. Yay! Thank you. 